Welcome to the Emmanuel Baptist Church Podcast. We pray that the sermon you're about to hear would be useful as you grow in your love for God and your love for His church. Now, here's today's sermon. All right, grab your copy of God's Word if you would. And as you're doing that, I'm going to ask for God's blessing on our time together in His Word one last time. Would you join me in that? Lord Jesus, we ask now as we go into Your Word, what we are not, make us. What we have not, give us. What we see not, show us. We ask all these things in Your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Hey, and I'm going to mention a lot of scriptures here because we're doing a topical study. Um, and if you lose track and your pen isn't writing fast enough, you'll have it in the bulletin. All the scriptures I'm going to mention, may, maybe minus one or two of them, because I added them last, last minute. Right now, this is our last week in our topical sermon series through the, the topic of, or observing the topic of, worship, as you can see there, particularly worship in the gathering, what we're doing right now, the gathering of the saints. And um, this week, this final week, we're going to be talking about how we should physically express, physically express our worship in the service. So this is the, this is the crescendo moment, right? What is fair play when we gather, right? And I ask that question week one, is it just authenticity do we only need to be authentic in what we're doing? Does it just need to be real for me? And if as long as it's real for me, then it's fair game and what that looks like. Could it be then that we could have dance teams with streamers running up and down the aisle if it's authentic? Could we have Jericho marches around the sanctuary as long as it's authentic? Could we do snake handling as long as it's authentic. We laugh, and yet they're legitimate questions because those legitimately happen, right? And so they're, they're, they're worthy questions, not mocking questions. They're questions that we need to know the answers to. I've, in fact, been in worship services where beach balls are being hit around while we are singing, and don't close your eyes to pray. You might get hit in the head. I've been in worship services where teams have run out onto the stage and shot off confetti cannons in celebration of Jesus. And, and so the question is very real and must be asked, what's fair game in our expressions of worship? They're worthy questions to be asked. And so to get these actions right, what are good actions and what are bad actions in the gathering of God's people, we need to backtrack a little bit, and get a couple other things right first, right? So that you and I aren't trusting our own experiences and opinions. We have to backtrack. Before we get to this question, we have to ask a couple other questions like, what does God's Word say, right? And so we must have, before we have right expression, we need right theology in our worship services, we need to talk about God's character, right? His mercy, His grace, how He's just, how He's holy, how He's powerful, how He's sovereign. We need to talk about man, not just God. We need to talk about man, our natural sinfulness, our regenerated hearts that now beat for Jesus and not for self. We need to talk about how we can be holy 
And we can't have good works in and only in or through Jesus Christ, death on the cross, and the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. We need to talk about not only God, but about man. We need to talk about Christ, his perfect life that he lived, his death that he died, his resurrection and his rule in heaven now. We need to talk about these things. And if we don't have right theology, any action of worship that we might do is very susceptible to be wrong. We need to have right theology in the worship service. And then that right theology should lead to right passions, right? When we're faced with who God is, we might be in awe, right? Right theology leads to right passions. We might, uh, it, that might inspire us to be amazed by Him as we think about who God is, or as, as we're faced with who man naturally is, this theology of man. We should have the right passion or feelings of conviction, of humility before a holy God. As we're faced with the work of Christ, we might feel thankfulness and joy. Our right theology should lead to right emotions and right passions. And after all of that's taking place, once right theology triggers right passions, we must know how to rightly express those passions we now feel. Right? Right theology leads to right passions. Now what do we do with those right passions? Michael Bleeker, a worship pastor himself, once wrote, we should be worshipers who know richly, who feel deeply, and who express passionately. And I would only add, express passionately and rightly. Once we feel those passions, it's not fair game on how to express those passions, as we'll see in just a minute. In fact, God actually has something to say about how you and I are to conduct ourselves in this gathering. My sister, uh, I'm, I'm not a big birthday person, and uh, so many people have said, happy birthday. I'm like, thank you. But I, I just, I'm okay with uh, people forget my birthday, right? My sister, though, she'll never forgive you if you forget her birthday. And so, in fact, not just her birthday, her birth month. If you forget, it's her birth month. or aren't celebrating her birth month. Anyone out there? Yeah. Like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she would not be okay with me coming up and saying, hey, Emma, I know you, you asked for this one thing. That was the one thing you really wanted for your birthday. But I just kind of felt like that's not what you need. And in fact, I actually decided, I want to give you this on your birthday. No, <laughs> she would not be very happy about that. I mean, she would receive it, but graciously, but she wouldn't be very happy about it. Instead, she gets to pick everything on that day, doesn't she? And you know, that, that's how it is for birthdays for most people, right? They get to pick the dinner. What are we eating for dinner? They get to pick the activities we do. If we're watching a movie, it's a movie night, they're picking the movie, right? God gets to command every day of what we do every day. Especially on the one that is called the Lord's Day right? It's his to command what should be done or what should not be done. So what does the Bible say about expressions of worship? 
Well, we've already mentioned that God has regulated or did regulate his people's worship who were under the Old Covenant. Right? Old Testament, theocratic Israel. He regulated their worship. Right? It goes all the way back to Genesis 4 before there even was an Israel. Just Cain and Abel, two brothers. And we can read there, I think we've got it. Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Okay, so they both brought sacrifices. They both brought worship. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. It wasn't just that he rejected Cain and Cain's heart. He rejected what Cain gave. We see in the Old Testament that priests... There were a lot of regulations on priests because they were the ones that were offering the sacrifices, right? They were down to the nitty-gritty of what they were wearing when they gave their sacrifices. They were down to the various types of sacrifices for various circumstances. And if the circumstances changed, so did the sacrifice. I mean, they were down to the letter of the law. And we see multiple times, three that I can mention, Nadab, Abihu, and Uzziah, all received judgment from God when they disregarded God's instruction on how they were to offer their sacrifices. So God regulated His people's worship under the Old Covenant. So it's not surprising that we still see regulations in our worship now in the New Covenant. New Testament Christians. It's not surprising that God would still have something to say about what we're doing. We actually, as Baptists, now there's a lot of different Baptist confessions or Baptist statements of faith, but there's one, the London Baptist Confession. It was wrote by Baptists in the 17th century, so it's a tried and true, age-old Baptist confession. And in chapter 22 of it, it reads this. The acceptable way to worship God is instituted by himself and is limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. So we as Baptists or Baptists in the, hist- in the past have affirmed this, that God does regulate his people's worship even in the new covenant today. We see in Scripture, we see this evident most clearly. We're going to look at a lot of places, but most clearly and most concisely in the book of 1 Timothy. Paul says there should be prayers made. 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. And then just seven verses later, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. So there's an expectation to pray. Paul says in the same book, 1 Timothy, that there should be public reading of Scripture as well as teaching of Scripture. In chapter 4, verse 13, until I come, Paul writes, devote yourselves, devote yourself, sorry, talking to Timothy, the pastor. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, 
and teaching. And then in this same letter of 1 Timothy, he even clarifies that teaching shouldn't come in the gathering of the church from the woman or the women. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet for Adam was formed first. This is his reasoning. For it's according to the created order, God's good creation. And then in chapter 3, the first 13 verses or so of chapter 3, Paul explains who are qualified to lead the church, both in the two offices of elder or pastor, synonyms, and deacon. And we've got to ask here, don't we? Why is he saying all this? Like, Paul, why are you explaining what should be done and what shouldn't be done when the people are together worshiping? Well, it's because God doesn't only care what we believe. He cares what we do when we gather. He says this. This isn't just Isaac's understanding or Isaac's belief. In chapter 3 of the same book still, verses 14 and 15, He says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, this is why I said all this, that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. He cares not only about what we believe, but actually what we even do when we're gathering as the church. Do's and don'ts. So there are right behaviors and wrong behaviors according to God's word. So two realities for my note takers. They're like, my pen is itching. I need to know what to write. Well, there are two realities in the Bible which God's, which kind of speak to God's regulations on our worship, okay? The first one, the first point regarding God's regulation on worship is that God mandates a few actions for all Christians to collectively participate in. He mandates a few key actions which all the people should be participating in. Every time we're getting together, or regularly when we get together, we need to be doing these things. So what are these mandated actions? Not optional. What are the mandated actions that he expects? Well, I've already mentioned the first three in the Timothys. The public reading of the Word. That needs to take place. Right? 4.13, he says, I exhort you, Timothy, to commit yourself to the reading of the word. And then in that same verse, he also says to exhortation or to teaching. So also not only reading the word, but preaching the word needs to take place amongst the people of God. It's the second one. The third one, we've already read it again, praying according to the word. Read that in... 1 Timothy 2.1 and then 1 Timothy 2.8. Make prayers for all people. Supplications, prayers. So we need to publicly read the Word. We need to have the Word preached. We need to pray according to the Word. Fourth, we need to sing according to the Word. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How? Singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. So this needs to take place. This is not an option. This is not a, if you feel like it, it's a, may this happen. 
So we need to sing according to the word. Lastly, we need to make visible the word. Like, what does that mean? I get read the word, preach the word, pray the word, sing the word. We need to make visible the word, symbolizing it through two ordinances. Symbolizing it through two ordinances. Firstly, baptism, right? Matthew 28, 19, and 20, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, making disciples of all nations. What's he mandate us to do? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So this baptism or this mandate, this ordinance, that makes visible the Word of God. It shows the regenerating work of the Spirit, that we are dead in our sins, we're made new in Him, washed clean by the work of the Spirit. We are making visible the gospel. Secondly, we make visible the Word of God and the gospel by taking communion, the second ordinance. Luke 22 talks about Jesus in the Lord's Supper, and he says, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And so when we do that, we are displaying or making visible what Jesus did for us. He broke his body. He spilt his blood that we might partake of the benefits to the sacrifice. So we are making visible the word. These are things that are not optional, are they? They're mandated. And so since God mandates each of these things, reading the word, preaching the word, praying the word, singing the word, making visible the word, since he mandates each one of those take place, got a couple things for you to think about. Firstly, we shouldn't cut any of these from that list, right? We shouldn't cut any of these. Either be it the leader's decision or the congregation's decision, it's not our decision to be made in the first place, it's God's decision that they be done. Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, and now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I have, that I'm teaching you. Do them. This is the same God. Yes, he's speaking to the Old Testament people, but it's the same God. He says, do them that you may live. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandment of the Lord your God that I commanded you. So we shouldn't cut any of these from the list. All right, so just put it out there. If I, as senior pastor here, if I were to ever say, you know what, there's no need for a sermon this week. Let's just keep singing. Let's just have a worship service all Sunday morning. Just, let's just sing. Don't listen to me. Someone better preach the word of God to the people that need to be reminded of the gospel every Sunday. It's true individually too, not just for the leader, but even for the individual in this room. Here we go. Ready? There will be songs you don't like. We're called to sing. There will be sermons that you don't enjoy. We're called to hear the word preached. Because 
God's Word commands these things. It's never right for any of us to say, I'm just a sermon type person, you know? It's not the music that speaks to me. I kind of just wait for that to get done so I can really be challenged by the sermon. It's not us, up to us to make that decision, what we want to participate in and what we don't. And not just for the sermon people, right? The intellectual people, but it's not up, up to us to say, I just don't like, rather, flip it, not just for the people that like to sing. It's not okay for us to say, yeah, I just don't like to sing, though. I'm just not a song person. I'll just be quiet and I'll wait for the sermon to start. Or I don't like to sit through the sermon, I just like to sing. And I belt it out when I sing. That's really when God speaks to me. We don't get to pick which one. Right, God calls us to do all of it. So we shouldn't cut any of those from the list, but we also shouldn't add any of those mandates to the list. We cannot mandate, in other words, what is not mandated by Scripture. Let me say that again. We cannot mandate what isn't mandated in Scripture. Again, it's Deuteronomy 4.2, right? Don't add to or subtract. It's also in the New Testament. Jesus said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Pause. How does that relate right now? Well, the Pharisees didn't ignore the word of God, did they? No, they were really good at keeping it. They added to it. They didn't subtract from the Word of God and say, I don't want to sing or I don't want to hear the Word. I don't want to read the Word. They didn't subtract. They added two, and he said, you're teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. You're mandating what Scripture doesn't mandate, in other words. Listen, the Word of God is sufficient in giving instruction for what worship should include. Sufficient. So, First point, God mandates certain actions for all people to participate in, to be involved in. Second point, God also, though, gives liberty for some individual expressions of worship within the corporate gathering. So he mandates all of us to sing. He mandates all of us to hear the word. He mandates all of us to take communion if you're a part of his church. But then there's also liberty, isn't there? when it comes to freedom of personal expression amongst the body. There are things that we don't all do, are not mandated to do, but we have the freedom to do. Okay? I'll give you a couple examples. This probably isn't an exhaustive list, but it gives you an idea. Firstly, raising hands. Anyone get nervous whenever I mention raising hands? I haven't always been Baptist, so... You might see me with my hands up. Psalm 63, verse 4, he says, So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. Is it mandated? No, but is it permissible? Yeah. You see, and, and I think the, the benefit of that, or I, the reasoning, I guess, for doing that, if you feel so moved to do that, it would be that our body posture displays the posture of our heart. Right? That, that's kind of the reason behind that. We do this all the time, don't we? 
posture of body reflects posture of heart. When we read the word of God, what do I say? Let's stand in reverence of God's word. What is that? That's a, that's a posture of body reflecting a reverence of heart. And it's no different when it comes to hand expressions. I was actually, I, 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 we were singing in worship two weeks ago, I think. And I thought of this, and I wrote on a napkin in the first pew. It's like, I got to mention that in week three. But we were singing, Here I Am to Worship. I think, that, is that the name of the song? Yeah, Here I Am to Worship. And, and I just caught myself doing this. It's just kind of second nature that my hands would express my heart. So I, I was singing, here I am to worship. And I had open palms like this, as if I was giving God something. I'm giving him my praise. So here I am to worship. And then he says, you are altogether lovely. And I just naturally did this. Right? This is, this is here I am. Take me. Take, send me. Use me, right? Receive my praise. And then I flip my hands and it's, you are altogether lovely. I'm amazed by you. So our, our hand raising could be an expression um, of body posture uh, reflecting our heart. We also see that uh, if, you, if you ever just want to kneel on your knees, right? It's reflecting submission and, and Adherence to God, humility before a big God. So, raising hands. Secondly, clapping, right? Clapping, Psalm 47, verse 1. Clap your hands, all people. Shout to God with loud songs and joy. Now, is it mandated? Doesn't seem to be in the New Testament. But these are scripturally permissible to do. And so, in these areas of liberty, of physical, or of personal expressions amongst the body, I do think that it's still not free reign. It's still not free reign as long as it's just authentic to me. I think God still gives principles to guide us within the context of personal liberty. I'll give you a couple of them. Firstly, worship expression shouldn't be disruptive to the worship service or to others worshiping. 1 Corinthians 14 kind of shows that. When then, brothers, what then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up, not distracting. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three and each in turn and let someone interpret but if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. You see, there's order. There should be order in the gathering. The context here, 1 Corinthians, people were disrupting service and creating chaos with all their outbursts. But doesn't the Bible say as a fruit of, our, of the Spirit within us, we should be self-controlled, right? We should be self-controlled. I think another example of disruptive worship, I remember whenever I was in high school, or I was a heathen. I uh, couldn't think of a better word. It was fitting. 
But I remember I was with my, my friends, we were in high school, and I intentionally clapped on the offbeat as loud as I could just to see if I could get anyone looking over at me and get annoyed. I just loved it. I was a punk. I needed discipline. But this wasn't worship to God. It was disruptive to the worship of others. Right? Or maybe even singing excessively loud. Not, I mean, if you want to belt it out to God, but, but being intentional or knowing there's also other people worshiping to God and maybe you're drawing their attention more than you should be. Right? I think it's actually God's desire that we would all sing in unison as best we can. Right? We're all trying our best. But we, we try to sing as one unit, one voice unto God. And not trying to be disruptive and stand out, right? And that kind of leads to my second point. Not only should it not be disruptive, but it shouldn't be for the approval or the attention of others. We've got one audience in our worship, right? Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. Think I've got it here. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For there you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, right, so not just practicing righteousness, but specifically, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. Even in the company of others, our worship has the audience of one. Right? If you raise your hands, do it for the one who saved you. If you clap, do it for the one who redeemed you. If you're singing, let your voice be going out for the one who died on the cross for you. And not for the other people to be impressed by your voice. He alone is our focus. So, this is what God wants for our worship. And it's not something to be frustrated or annoyed by. I hope that's not your heart this morning. It's easy to feel that way, right? It just seems so strict. It seems so binding. I like to be free in my worship. If that is your heart, and I pray it's not, but if it is, just remember what Jesus did. Truly. Remember what Jesus did for you. He lived for you. He sacrificed and he died for you. He rose for you. He sits on the throne, reigning over this world with his eyes on you. And so he deserves our efforts in worship to give him what he wants, not what I want to give. Right? So this is something to be excited about. You ever heard of the five love languages, right? Sarah and I are polar opposites in that, believe it or not. (laughs) But I love to make Sarah feel loved, right? But not in the ways that I like to feel loved. I know that she likes words of affirmation. I know that she likes quality time, just together. I know those aren't mine. Those aren't my natural love languages. Those aren't how I naturally show my affection. But I do them. 
I do them because I love her and I love to make her feel loved. And I think this, is this not a good analogy for how we are to go before God, whether or not we feel natural in our singing or whether or not we like to think really deep in the sermon? God has communicated what he wants and how we show him affection. May we do that because he is deserving of it. Amen. Let me pray. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. If you live in or near Bethany, Missouri, we invite you to join us for our worship services held on Sunday morning and Sunday evenings, as well as our various activities on Wednesday nights. For more information on how you can get involved, visit our website at bethanyibc.com.